Church. Uh, it's a joy to gather with you all today as God's people. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Joel McCarty. I'm the pastor of Missional Life here at Summit Crossing. Uh, Jamie Nettles, who's our pastor of Preaching and Vision, um, he's still away out of the country on a missions trip. Uh, you can continue to pray for him, his wife, and the team. Uh, I believe they'll be back this Tuesday, um, and so he'll be back with us next week. So, yeah, welcome to Summit Crossing. We're talking about sex again this week. Um, if you were here with us last week, we talked about it as well then. Um, so hopefully together we're going to kind of just lean in and engage. Um, sometimes as a preacher, people, whether it be people in the congregation or other preachers, will encourage you to use illustrations, especially at the beginning of your sermon, to kind of draw people in, to give time to settle in and lean in and engage. Um, so I was trying to think of a good illustration. I'm not really good at coming up with illustrations. Um, so I just thought, I'd just say we're talking about sex, and that'll make half of you really uncomfortable, and the other half of you may be excited, and we'll lean in together and just uh, go to work. So um, yeah, we're going to dive right in. Um, as you can tell, we're in the midst of a series on Proverbs. Uh, the book of Proverbs is written in a manner uh, that it really lends itself to taking various topics that it addresses and going through those. And so that's what we've been doing. I believe we're about five weeks in now. Um, for the topic of sex, uh, last week we did kind of part one and this week part two. So we're kind of looking at those together. This week is wisdom and sex part two. Uh, we're going to talk about sex from the book of Proverbs. Um, we're spending two weeks because we wanted to approach this subject as holistically as we could in the time frame we have. Um, one, because there's a lot of conversations uh, culturally surrounding this topic, and I would even say a lot of confusion uh, right now culturally surrounding the topic of sexuality. Um, and then also Proverbs just has a lot to say about it. And so last week, during part one, we focused primarily on the beauty of sexuality. We laid this foundation for what the Bible has to say in all of the scriptures about sexuality. And this week, we're going to be focusing on the brokenness of sexuality, specifically how to fight sexual temptation. Uh, I don't normally stress this, but if you missed last week, Seriously, please go listen to the podcast. Um, last week is very important uh, to see in, in light of what we're talking about this week. If you only catch this week's sermon, you're going to kind of get a truncated view of biblical sexuality. Last week's sermon is kind of foundational to understanding the beauty of sexuality and the good news about sexuality as we wade into the waters of sexual brokenness. Um, you can listen on your desktop at mysc3.org. There's a link there. If you click on Sermon Series, you can find it um, on a mobile device. It's, it's simpler to use your podcast app um, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or more recently on Spotify. It looks very clean on there for Spotify users. Um, search for Summit Crossing Limestone specifically, and you'll hear last week's sermon on there. And this week's sermon will also be up as well. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but I did at least want to do a quick review to catch us up. Uh, for those of you that weren't here, and then for those of you that were and already forgot, uh, like I typically do, we're going to do a quick review. These are the things we talked about. I'm not going to, again, re-preach them. But we talked about God's plan for sex and sexuality, that God's original intent was for sex to be between one man and one woman within a marriage covenant, and that we don't believe that that truth has changed. We learned that what we do with sex matters is important, not just because God tells us something, but because it actually tells a story about God. First of all, that God exists in unity and diversity. And so the diversity of man and woman uniting together in sex tells us something that no other earthly union can. We also learned that sex is so spiritual and so powerful and so highly thought of by God that the only proper context for sex to take place where it won't destroy 
is within the marriage covenant. It's like a fire that is, is good and life-giving within its proper context in a fireplace or in a fire pit, but outside of that, it can be destructive. We learn that the big picture story that sex within covenant is telling us is actually one of intimacy and union, specifically between Jesus and his church but also of all other complementary unions. And so this big picture story we talked about is why our sexuality matters. We kind of set that foundation. We fleshed that out quite a bit. It's a very quick overview of last week, but that's where we're going to pick up today. Um, Just like I mentioned last week, um, we're going to be talking about sexual brokenness, and I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to a broad range of people in here today. And so as we address this topic, we are approaching it with as much humility and grace as we can. You may have a lot of sexual baggage, maybe sex, sexual sin, sin done by you, or maybe sexual sin done against you. And so as we talk, it could bring up feelings of guilt, shame, maybe anger, bitterness, and pain. And we want you to know that we, we do not intend to do that at all. But if that happens, we hope that you very clearly hear that the good news of Jesus speaks a better word over you than your sexual brokenness. As we said last week, your identity, regardless of what the world tells you, your identity is not your sexuality. And if you stay with us through the end, I believe you'll see that there's incredible news for every single one of us, no matter how much you may believe that you are past healing. Also, since we're talking about sexual brokenness today, and since we're talking about areas of sexual sin, I wanted to take a moment to address something up front, and that is sexual abuse. See, ever since the brokenness of the fall, sin has worked itself out in one of two ways. So first of all, in, in, inside all of us, we are broken and we have personal responsibility when it comes to sin, including sexual sin. And today we're going to be focusing primarily on that, meaning what are our own distorted sexual desires and actions? That's kind of the push of Proverbs, for you to take personal responsibility, But sometimes, in the other way sin works itself out, that's when we sin and we uh, are affected by the fault in the way we sin. Sometimes sin is done to us at no fault of our own, and we become the victim of sin, and in this case, sexual abuse. And we need to be clear and distinguish the difference. You do not need to feel guilt for sexual sin done unto you by somebody else. As a victim of sexual abuse myself, We want you to know that if that's you, we weep with you, and that what happened was evil and horrific, and God hates it. You also need to hear that it was not your fault, and that the shame surrounding that experience or experiences is a tool from the enemy who wants to destroy you and make that your identity. He's got no empathy for you. The enemy will take that abuse and will tell you that you were complicit or you were somehow responsible. And as the church, we want to say that's a lie and that we are here to listen whenever you are ready to share and that we will stand with you in the pursuit of justice. I also want you to hear that if that's you, God sees and he is a just judge who will judge rightly and deal with the perpetrator's of abuse. And if any of you want to talk through what healing looks like, please grab me some time or grab someone you trust. We want to walk with you as well as set you up with counseling professionals to help you on your journey. We want you to know that there's hope. And so if you stay with us today, I, I honestly do believe you'll see that. So I wanted to make sure I said that statistics show we have many in here who are victims of abuse. 
But like I said, today we're focusing primarily on the brokenness of sexuality and how we are called to fight against the various distortions and temptations that exist. So we're looking to Proverbs and we're saying, asking the question, how do we ultimately fight for sexual wholeness, if you want to use the term purity, um, in a world of sexual confusion and brokenness? And as we go into this, remember the foundation for wisdom about any topic in Proverbs is first of all worship. The fear or awe or worship of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so again, how does the broken, even the brokenness of sex reveal that Yahweh is faithful and true and show him to be good in the midst of sexual confusion? So just like last week, I'm going to make this super simple for us. I have two points that we're going to unpack during our time. First, flee sexual sin Second, run to Jesus. Flee sexual sin, run to Jesus. And so let's start by looking at the first point, flee sexual sin. Flee sexual sin. The context of Proverbs here is a father to his son. But as we mentioned last week, this has meaning and application for all of us. When we looked last week at sexual beauty, we focused primarily on a passage in Proverbs chapter 5, where the father encouraged his son. He said, enjoy sex with your wife. And we talked about how that passage was sandwiched in between many conversations and warnings about sexual temptation. And so today we're going to be looking at passages primarily from Proverbs chapter 2, 5, 6, and 7. Those are the primary passages or chapters that deal with it. Um, I don't expect you to follow along because I'm going to bounce around a little bit, but I will have the verses on the screen for you so you can see the scriptures for yourself that way. As we go into this conversation about fleeing sexual sin, we must enter the conversation with a level of humility. We must admit that our natural bent ever since the fall is to take good gifts from God and to distort them for our own purposes, including our sexuality. We said this last week, but the whole book of Proverbs could be summed up. Trust God, not self. Trust what God has to say about every topic, not what we have to say. And that requires humility. We must submit to what God says about sin, not to what we think or what we feel. And we must understand that this father in this letter to his son is not trying to restrict his son He's trying to help his son become wise about his sexuality because he knows that's what leads to life, wholeness, and flourishing. And he knows that the world of sexual confusion his son is entering into will tempt him with sexual sin, which will lead to death, the way of sexual fools. He wants his son to flee these destructive temptations. And so right away in the book, in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we read that you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So the context in verse 1 through 15 is like, pursue wisdom, love understanding, treasure my words in your heart. And if you do all these things, then you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So in this culture and in this time, for this father to his son, this book of wisdom... We're going to address sexual sin in the context of what would have been, and we need to understand this, the context is here, the strongest temptation and opportunity for sexual foolishness to take place. In this context, that was an adulterous relationship. They didn't have pornography accessible on their smartphones. And so the father's dealing with the primary temptation for this son. But we need to understand that the goal of Proverbs is not trying to give us an extensive list of what is wrong sexually. 
It's already assuming that sex is supposed to take place in a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, and that there's all kinds of sexual distortions outside of that. And so what he's doing is he's taking adultery and he's essentially using it as a case study in how do we fight sexual temptation. For us today, adultery is still one of the sexual distortions that we must be on guard against, but it's not the only one. There are many other forms of sexual brokenness that take place as well. There's a lot of pressures from our current cultural climate. Pornography, masturbation, homosexuality, sex before marriage. The list could go on. We could talk about that endlessly. And actually, in the preparation of the sermon, I plan to address some of the current cultural sexual temptations. And it's really hard for me not to um, because I, I'm risking confusion and misunderstanding from both sides here. Um, but the reality is, as we submit ourselves to the text of Proverbs, Proverbs assumes sexual brokenness and primarily deals not with the what is sexual brokenness, but the how do we fight against sexual brokenness and how do we live whole in a sexually confused world. And so to be faithful to the text of Proverbs, and for sake of time, I think we would do well to spend our time focusing more on the how to fight sexual temptation versus what they might look like. See, here's the thing. There's always going to be counterfeit, distorted views of sexuality. The world is going to offer up new and better versions, and the enemy will do that. And so we need to remember that our primary focus as Christians cannot be on just the current examples of sexual brokenness, though we can do that some. But our main focus is on displaying and declaring to the world the the real thing, not the counterfeit, the real thing, God's beautiful design for sexuality and union. See, different counterfeits will come and go, and if you want to know what's counterfeit, study the real thing, not just the counterfeits. See, often the church can spend its time trying to fix what is broken in the world around us instead of focusing on what is real and good and right and true. The best defense for biblical sexuality that the church has is a wholesome community of faith that together, married and single, display and declare the gospel by loving each other and welcoming the sexually confused sinner into their midst, continually pointing them to Jesus. And so having said all that, let's look at what Proverbs has to say about how we can fight against the brokenness of sexual sin. As I studied it, it seems that there were six primary admonitions from the book of Proverbs in regard to fleeing sexual temptation. So we're going to walk through these and hopefully get a holistic look at fighting sexual sin. Number one, first admonition Proverbs says, be honest about the end of sexual sin. Be honest about the end of sexual sin. Proverbs does not mince words when it comes to sexual sin. The writer wants to make it clear that though sexual temptation may be alluring and appealing in the beginning, that the end is death, destruction, and the grave. Definitely spiritually and sometimes even physically. And we won't look at all the verses because it would take forever, but look at Proverbs chapter 7, verse 22. This is this young man who's given into this temptation, and it says, All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. This is not a game. Over and over in Proverbs, we see language like death, Sheol, which is the place of the dead. We see flesh and body consumed, destruction of self. We see wounds and dishonor. We see utter ruin that you can't come back from, public and private humiliation, and so much more. 
And Proverbs doesn't just live in the spiritual by and by that we can kind of pass it off. It's very practical and deals with the here and now. And this is extremely honest for our conversation today. Adultery can cause you to lose your family. Pornography, self-gratification will teach you to be selfish and will make true sexual intimacy incredibly difficult. And we could go on and on with sexual sin. There are real world consequences to sexual sin and God knows this and he wants you and us to know this. And so in our humility, we need to agree. If we disagree with God about the end and we think it's pleasure, we need to repent of that and agree with what God says about sexual sin and its end. See, God is not a repressive God out to oppress you and keep you from your liberation and your freedom. No, he's standing there saying, this is the way to death. Don't go this way. Turn to the way of life because he loves you too much to let you go down that path. So we're honest about the end of sexual sin. And secondly, be honest about the allure of sexual sin. This is important. Our, our children, and as we have these conversations, often get number one. The end is dangerous. And we tell them it's evil. But we're not honest that up front, sexual sin is actually attractive. Proverbs is very clear. He says the forbidden woman's speech drips honey, that her words are smoother than oil, that she is full of attractive flattery that feels good. She even says, guess what? No one will catch us. There's no consequences tied to this sin. Let's not pretend that sin is pleasurable for a season. If you tell your kids that sin will destroy them, but we don't tell them that it's pleasurable, when they get to it and it looks pleasurable, they're going to think you were lying about the end as well. And so we tell them up front, yes, it's going to be attractive. We're not saying that you're not going to want to do it with fleshly desires. But we're honest about that. And as we've said already, it leads to death. So once we're honest about those two things, number three, Proverbs tells us don't even get close to sexual sin. I mean, this, Proverbs tells us what, what should be obvious if we really believe and agree with God on the first two things, that sexual sin leads to death then the only natural thing to do is run. Proverbs 5, 7, And now, O oh sons, listen to me. Listen, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't even go near the door of her house. The father tells his son, don't play games like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Run the heck away and get as far away as you can from sexual sin. Don't flirt with it. It's going to cost you your life. In Proverbs 6, he compares sexual sin to coals and fire that you can't play with it. You can't walk on coals and not be burned. You can't flirt with sexual sin and not get burned. This is so applicable. When we fall into sexual sin, it's normally because we're flirting with it and we think we can kind of enjoy the pleasures of sin and then just pull back whenever we want. Whether that be going on the social media sites that we know we can see what we want to and have an excuse and say we just stumbled into it. Whether it be that emotional affair that you're beginning with your coworker that you know is not healthy and that could lead to not only emotional adultery but physical adultery. Proverbs says, don't even play around with it. Number four, take personal responsibility. Take personal responsibility. As we seek to fight sexual sin, it's important for us not to blame shift. This is very intriguing to me because the father here paints this adulterous woman in a very honest um, light. He, he says that she is seductive, that she is evil, he, she's forbidden, all these things, but he never makes her the culprit and the reason for this man's demise. 
He actually says many times she's ignorant. She doesn't know what she's doing. But when he speaks of this man, he says that it is this young man who hated discipline, despised reproof, and didn't listen. Proverbs 5.23 says he dies. What is the reason? It's because she she seduced him. No, he died for his own lack of discipline. And because of his own great sexual folly, he is led astray. He never blames the way this woman dressed. He never blamed the fact that she was immodest or that she seduced him. No, he puts the responsibility solely on him. And it's important for us to take responsibility for our misplaced sexual desires and actions. And when we find ourselves out of line with God's plan for sexuality, either in our mind or physically with our bodies, we repent and are honest about that. Next one we find is to engage in honest and open community. In this situation of adultery given by his father to his son, one of the reasons he fell into sin is that he forsook the teachers and instructors that God had given him. Plural language. Teachers and instructors. He's shown as going from his normal paths and rhythms of life that were maybe mundane but led to life, and he went from those to isolated, lonely, dark places Searching for what Proverbs calls the bread eaten in secret that is sweet at first, but in the end it leads to death. We need each other in this fight. See, sin loses its power when it's brought into the light. And an important, massive piece of fighting for sexual wholeness is to be honest about your areas of struggle and temptation. And when someone is, receive that. Don't give them condemnation, give them Jesus, even if it's a sexual struggle that you're not familiar with. We share with trusted friends, brothers and sisters, who will consistently and routinely point us to the truth in love. The last thing, I would argue the most important that Proverbs teaches us about fighting sexual sin is to pursue a greater affection. See, everything we've seen up to this point is absolutely necessary and a huge part of fighting for sexual wholeness. But if we follow this list to a T, all these things will be ineffective if we are not aware of our need for not only new actions, but new affections and new loves. See, we don't just need these principles written on our notepad, though that's a good start. We need them written on our hearts. That's why the resounding drumbeat of Proverbs is, my son, give me your heart. He uses phrases like treasure, these words, love my commandments, bind them on your heart. Look at Proverbs 7, 1 through 5. My son, this is going into probably the biggest argument against sexual temptation that he makes, and he starts it with this. He says, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Treasure, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. So don't just listen. Don't just try to obey it in your own strength. I want you to love the teaching. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. So we're replacing false, cheap affections with a real affection, with a real person. And that's what keeps you from the forbidden woman. Proverbs gets to the heart of the matter because no matter who we are in here, no matter how dirty or pure you think you are in regard to sexual sin, every single one of us is a sexual fool. We all at our heart's level have been unfaithful. Jesus makes this clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he speaks of lust. 
And he says that we commit adultery when we just look on a woman to lust. And so just because we do something mentally and don't act on it, we are guilty of that sin. If people could see the depths of our heart, we would all be revealed to be what we truly are, sexually broken people. And that's why the ultimate tool to fighting sexual sin is not enough good tips. It's the relationship with the person personified in Proverbs as Lady Wisdom and ultimately later fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who is true wisdom. And just like sexual temptation that calls out for attention, so does Lady Wisdom. But she doesn't do it in secret. She does it in the high places and out in public and says, everyone is welcome, even sexual fools, come in and find the way of light and the path to life. This leads us to the second half of our statement at the beginning, our second main point. Run to Jesus. We've got to get this. We've got to get this. See, the reality is we're not just sexually broken. We are spiritually broken. Like the adulterous woman, we've first forgotten the covenant of our God, and that's what leads to sexual distortions. Our sexual brokenness is an outworking of our spiritual brokenness. We have all failed to live up to the vocation that God has given us to display God's beauty in male or female, and that's the reason we were created. We've broken the covenant with God time and time again. As we mentioned last week, we look for union and intimacy and fulfillment in all the wrong places. And the culture of this age speaks a lie that says to be whole, you have to have sexual fulfillment that you need to walk into your sexual desires. Even if they're misplaced, don't suppress them, and then you'll find who you truly are. They say this is the path to life. And we believe the lies of the enemy. We worship our pleasure instead of worshiping God, the one we were created to be in union with. And we all are walking down the pathway of death. The way of no escape. Proverbs says there's no coming back. There's no return. No one comes back from this death. We all are the sexual fools being led like oxes to the slaughter, not knowing that it will cost us our life. That's why dabbling some principles down on a notepad, it can help us recognize where we're at and that we're on the way to death but it does not give us the power to choose life. We have to hear this. The law cannot make us live. It cannot give us a new heart. It can't make us beat for God's law. See, it's not enough to know that we're broken. It's not enough to just know from what we are to flee. We must know to whom to go. And this very reason is why Jesus came to show us in the face of Jesus Christ the magnificent beauties and glory of God on display in the person and the work of Jesus Christ to give us new affections. The whole story of the scripture shows that humanity were covenant breakers to our core. God knew that we would twist good gifts like sexuality and misuse them for our own purposes. He knew that the only hope was for him to come and keep the covenant himself. And so he came. Don't miss this. As a full human, meaning he had a full and robust sexuality like any of us. But Jesus, though tempted just as we are in regard to his sexuality, was perfectly without sin. 
he never even considered stepping down the path that led to death. He never lusted after women as he ministered to them. Even the adulterers and the prostitutes, he saw them not as objects to be used, but as they truly were dignified image bearers, so worthy of love and respect. He invited sexual fools into his presence, gave them places of honor, knowing that he would be pure on their behalf. He took women like those caught in adultery. He withheld his accusations and protected her from those seeking to destroy her, sent them away, then forgave her and called her to a new life of sexual wholeness, reminding her that her identity was not in her past, but rather in Christ. He was completely whole as a human. Though he never engaged in the act of sex, he was whole. And this shows us that the real thing, which is intimacy with God, is better than any earthly substitute. And we don't have to have sex to be whole. And even though he was perfectly whole and pure, in his death on the cross, he willingly entered into the end of our sexual foolishness. He was the one who was led like an ox to the slaughter. Looking like he was dumb, like, like we, we were. But he didn't go there because he was stupid and ignorant. No, he knew what was coming and he had his face set like a flint, but he went there because he knew that was the only way to redeem broken sexual fools. On the cross, he became sexual sin for us. He bore what should have been ours. Every sexual, sexually immoral thought, every viewing of pornography, our lustful thoughts towards others, all of our sexual sin, he put it on his back and he bore it on the cross. For those who've been hurt sexually by others, you need to hear this. He not only deals with the sin in your own heart, he deals with the sin done to you by others. As he bore the shame on the cross, he bores, bears the full shame of your abuse. He knows what it's like. He feels your pain. He feels your hurt and your frustration. And he cares so much that he refused to leave you alone in it, that he crawled down into those dark places with you as he takes on the full force of evil that's behind all sexual abuse. Every bit of brokenness and evil in the entire cosmos is unleashed on the perfect human Jesus, the God-man, as he lays in the tomb. But he trusts his Father. He knows that God would not, not allow his Holy One to see ultimate corruption. See, Proverbs tells us that there's no coming back from the end of sexual sin. There's no one who can regain the path of life or come back from death. But Jesus does, because he is stronger than sin, death, and the grave. And as he stands resurrected, he reclaims victory over the evil powers of darkness. And he puts them to an open shame. And in doing so, he gives hope for a sexually broken people. And everyone who looks to the perfect, full, whole life of Jesus receive his purity and his perfection. This is the great exchange. The resurrection of Jesus was just the beginning. 
He's not going to leave you here. He's promised to, to come back and resurrect and fulfill all of those who put their trust in him. And so the gospel gives us hope not only for our sexual past, but also for our future and our present. He's promised to come back and get rid of all those who would abuse his children. The justice of God is good news. He's going to cast abusers outside the kingdom, those who are unrepentant, and they can never again abuse or harm his people. But in this broken age, we yearn and we groan and we suffer, longing for fulfillment and wholeness, longing for the sexual sin done by us and in our hearts to end and the temptations to stop. And we want the sexual sin done unto us and others to end. So we grieve and we yearn, but we grieve and yearn with hope. One day death will be swallowed up by life. And God's given us the very spirit of God as the guarantee that it will happen. We are washed in the blood of Jesus and made new right now. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This is good news for sexual sinners. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is very sobering verses. Don't be deceived. Be honest about sin. We're all in this list somewhere. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross and resurrection for those who are in Christ has more power than your sexual sin. This is who you are. Jesus has made you a new creation. And this is the love. As we see this love, it's what begins to give us new affections. That power we said the principles couldn't give us, the person of Jesus begins to give us. And we love because he first sought and loved us even when we were unlovely, undeserving, sexual fools cheating on him and others. So today, no matter how broken you are, no matter how much your life seems like a pile of ashes on the ground, no matter how many times you think you've screwed it up, run to Jesus. He takes brokenness and makes it beautiful. He takes ashes and creates monuments of grace. He takes a bunch of screw-ups and sexual fools and makes them trophies, displaying his goodness and his glory and his beauty. True purity in mind, body, and soul, sexually and otherwise, is only found in Christ. This is the power, knowing what God has done in the past, knowing what he's going to do in the future. This is the power to live a transformed life here in the present. We are not helpless in our fight against sexual sin. And I know we still live in a sexually broken and confused world. I know that, that in here some of you live with regret about your sexual past or present. I know that some of you in here might be frustrated with the prospects of a future sex life. Maybe you're single and you don't know if that's going to work out. Maybe you struggle with same-sex attraction and you feel like the call to celibacy is a cross that's too hard to bear. I, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're in a marriage that seems fruitless and tiring and unfulfilling sexually. And as the church, we know that's hard and we're here from you. Let's recognize and be honest that that struggle against sexual sin is a legitimate form of suffering. 
First Peter is clear about that, that fighting the devil and the enemy is a form of suffering. And he encourages the church to resist and hold fast because they're not alone in that. Other believers are experiencing that. And there's a hope because Jesus is going to come back and release us from those temptations when he returns. But until that day, we recognize that you might be in that form of suffering and you get to walk in and experience the suffering of Jesus in those moments and know that you're not alone in your struggle. The enemy will tell you that. There's others in here who've experienced similar struggles and even more importantly, Jesus has. Thank God we don't have a high priest who is unfamiliar with our temptations and our struggles. Jesus is your wisdom. He is your sanctification. And know that in Christ, if you are in Christ, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and showed his power over the end results of sexual sin lives within you and will be with you day by day as you claw and scratch and fight for sexual wholeness for the glory of God. In the struggle, look to the finished work of Jesus the future promise of resurrection as your hope, and ask the Spirit to continually grant you new and true affections in the here and now. Last week we saw how the very end of the story is a reuniting with Jesus. That the story of sex in a marriage covenant is ultimately pointing to the story of Christ and his bride. And so we talked about how Jesus unites us to himself, but the piece we didn't talk about that is so applicable today is that he does not only promise to unite us to himself, that he promises to make us righteous and whole and pure as if we never cheated before. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself, not raggedy, not broken, not messed up anymore, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. And this is the word that God speaks over you, no matter how sexually broken you are. This is the work that God is doing if you surrender to Christ and he will complete it. If that's not, you turn to him and surrender. He's way better than any sexual thing you could chase after in this life. We have to constantly remind each other of this truth. Community, church, we need each other to continually point us to Jesus. We can't be alone in this. And as we love each other as Christ's bride, we show a foretaste of what's to come. See, for those of us in Christ, at the end of the story of the scriptures and kind of the beginning of all time, we see this vision in Revelation where we are found together, fully complete image-bearing men and women, seated at the best marriage reception ever, this giant party and celebration, thrown by the lamb who was slain to marry and ransom wretched sinners and sexual fools like you and me. You can't make up a story like this. And everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus is invited to this dinner. This is when the work that Jesus began in us will be complete. And in that vision, guess what? We're not seen as bumbling sexual fools, screwing it up. We're seen clothed in white linen, bright pure and holy, representing righteousness and purity.
It's called the deeds of the saints, that God will complete the work and Jesus will finally and completely form us into his image once and for all. This is the good news for sexual fools like us. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. You're so right. You're so true. You're so pure. You're so holy. The fact that we can be in union with you should just blow our minds. We're so far from you. God, I pray for anyone in here who's struggling, maybe with what the scriptures has to say about sexuality. They wouldn't worry about getting it all right, but they would first just run to you, Jesus. You will do the sanctifying work. You will complete what you start. And so let us surrender our lives to you. For those who have sexual shame and guilt and baggage, let us begin to believe the better story that you tell us about yourself. That you are good and you are uniting us unto yourself. And you're going to wipe away every tear that we've shed. You're going to wipe away all pain, all grief. And you're dealing with death finally and completely. Casting her into the abyss where the smoke goes up forever because she's never coming back. Let's believe this good news. We love you, Jesus. You're so good. Amen. We're about to go into a time.